I want to uh, just start by mentioning a couple of things, if you'll indulge me for a second. Uh, these are unusual times, aren't they? I was telling Bob, I've, I've had the chance to preach in, over the last seven, eight months because of COVID in a lot of weird places, outdoors, indoors, into a camera because nobody could come, and then we live stream it and all, all kinds of things. So, uh, But this is kind of exciting to preach in a theater because I, I always told my mom someday I'm going to be on the big screen. So now I can prove it to her, you know. Uh, so that's, uh, that's pretty exciting. Hey, a uh, couple of just, again, uh, preliminary remarks, if you will. Um, we are, because of the light here, we're kind of trying to find a dark spot on the screen. That's the reason it's so small over here. We were, we were turning everything upside down, trying all configurations this morning. And even though you might not think so, believe it or not, that was the best place. So those of you in the back, if you're like me and have terrible eyesight, I apologize. I know it's tough to see from way in the back, but, uh, Anyway, I also want to mention, I hope you will try to come by the church office later today. I'd love to just visit with you, get to spend some time fellowshipping a little bit more. And uh, we do have two new books since the last time I was here. Um, One of them is called The Top Ten Reasons Some People Go to Hell and The One Reason No One Ever Has To. I'm really excited about that that book. I want to just encourage you to check that out. And then we also have a new devotional book uh, called Weekly Words of Life, 52 devotionals to to warm your heart and strengthen your faith. And so those are both over there. And then also, one of the biggest reasons I hope you'll come by later on today is that I'd love to talk with you about Cornerstone Bible Institute. And that's a great uh, Bible Institute in Hot Springs, South Dakota that I'm privileged to be a part of. And we would have been talking to Bob about maybe some type of strategic partnership with Northern Lakes. And we have some online classes. We have, uh, you know, it's a great place to send young people for either a gap year or just to really undergird them with the Word of God from a, a con, you know, traditional dispensational grace-based view of Scripture before they go off to college. Lots of options there. So we've got some materials over there, brochures and student handbook and things like that that I'd love for you to pick up and you know, ask me questions about. And then uh, we also have a new DVD set that's over there called the Rapture Series. And uh, it's four uh, different DVDs of ours that we put together into a package on the rapture. One minute after the rapture, one minute before the rapture, the imminency of the rapture, and top ten signs the rapture may be soon. So uh, that's a new set that's over there. Um, let's see. Also want to mention, now do you guys have something on Wednesday nights here or no? So I'm going to be at Candlelight Wednesday, and uh, I'd love for you to come out and uh, just you know su- support us, support Not By Works there. Um, but uh, I'm excited about what I'm going to preach, even though I don't know what it is yet. So I'm waiting to see what happens Tuesday night, whether the world comes to an end or not. And then I've got two messages that I've been praying about and thinking about. And depending on what happens in two days, I'll, you know, either give a victory speech or a, you know, God help us speech. I don't know which it'll be, but uh, we'll find out on, uh, on Wednesday. So uh, looking forward to that. And it really is an exciting time uh, to be alive, as Bub said. And and uh, his remarks and even the songs, and the Lord does this all the time when I'm traveling and speaking. It seems like the Spirit of God you know, goes before us and prepares the hearts of, of men and women in the, in the service to, for what the God's put on my heart uh, in, in the Word. So, uh, but like Bob was saying, that, you know, this is a great time to remember God's in charge and who, who's, who's sovereign. And uh, we depend on that and we trust in that. And then finally, before we turn our attention to Psalm chapter 2, I would love it if you would do me a favor and go to the Not By Works YouTube channel. Uh, We're going to post this message later on uh, today, so it'll be up there. But we've got hundreds of messages from 
you know, all across the country where we've spoken, and from our home church in Colorado when I'm in town, we I preach three times a week there, and those are always uploaded. Uh, and I'm just looking for you to subscribe and stay in touch with us that way, and maybe spread the word. Uh, you know what we believe about the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel message, and so even though we've got different series on different topics, including the end times, uh, the doctrine of salvation, I'm preaching through the book of Hebrews, there's lots of different options. People are always going to hear the gospel, that's for sure, and we need it now more than ever. Amen? So, all right, well, let's turn our attention to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. Um, you know, what a, what a year this has been. I mean, who could have predicted it? <laughs> um, I mean, we've got major unrest throughout the world because of this control of virus scandemic, I call it. We've got the increasing threat of terror. Uh, we've got continued economic concerns. In many places, people have lost their jobs. Small businesses have shut down. People are really struggling. We've got crazy weather patterns and unprecedented fires due to manufactured weather warfare. And I talked about that in a recent video. Um, we've got increased attacks on personal liberty and freedom. We've got threats of EMPs and solar flares. and There's even, I don't know if you've heard about this, uh, I talked about this uh, not too long ago in a, in a video, but there's even an asteroid named Apophis, named after the Egyptian god of chaos, that uh, NASA is watching very closely, hurtling toward the Earth, uh, that uh, many say might hit the Earth. We don't know, but it, it certainly uh, might end up being, if God you know, comes back and we meet the Lord in the air at the rapture, that could very well end up being the fulfillment of one of the trumpet judgments in Revelation 8. I'm not saying it will be, but it's just these are the kinds of things that we see signs of the times. And then to top it all off, in two days, we're having a presidential election in a country that's more divided than at any other time in history. Um, more than ever before, we need to view life through the biblical lens of Scripture. You know, God's Word gives us everything we need for life and godliness. It gives us sort of the answer. It tells a story that goes from creation to fall to redemption to recreation. Uh, it, it's, a, it's an incredible grand meta-narrative that reminds us of who wins in the end. And sometimes even those of us who believe the Bible and who know the Lord Jesus by grace through faith can tend to become sort of, you know, single-minded in looking at all the negative around us. And I think that's kind of what was going on in Psalm 2 with King David. The Bible repeatedly reminds us that there's a cosmic battle between good and evil taking place, between God, the eternal creator of the universe, and Satan. You know, Satan rebelled against God uh, in the beginning, and the Bible is clear that this Luciferian rebellion is growing. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us uh, in the New Testament in 67 AD, in the early days of the church age, that things are going to get worse and worse and worse. So I don't know if you recognize this, but depravity is a degenerative disease. It doesn't get better with time. And we're not going to see all things renewed and made new until the King of Kings and Prince of Peace comes back and takes the throne and and throws off the shackles of the revived Roman Empire and 
cast the, the Antichrist and false prophet into the lake of fire and begins to rule with a rod of iron in perfect justice. So there are a lot of people today teaching that we can sort of usher in the kingdom now and if we can just, you know, uh, do this or that or this or that, we can somehow uh, bring in the kingdom. Well, the kingdom's not going to come according to God's word until the king comes, and that's Jesus Christ. And so in Psalm 2, we're, we're going back, uh, you know, Two, uh, you know, a thousand years before Christ, three thousand years from where we sit today, and we're un we're going to understand David's perspective on this growing uh, global rebellion, and it is global. See, Satan wants to take over this world. He couldn't have heaven, right? And so, when he couldn't usurp God's power and authority there, he was cast out to earth. A, th a third of the angels followed with him. And, and they now consider this world their domain, their place. And he's been trying to take over the world ever since he confronted Eve in the garden. And, uh, and you might argue um, he's come a long way, frankly. More than ever before today, we are hearing talk of a one-world system, the global reset, a one-world government, a one-world currency, uh, all of that. And that's by design. Satan's been trying to do that since he got kicked out of heaven. He's come close before, but because he's not omniscient and not omnipotent and not omnipresent, he, he's, he has to rely on a conspiracy between involving his demons and other human beings to try to accomplish this. And I believe they're, they're on the verge of something pretty profound. And by the way, it might interest you to remember that you know, the Bible does not say the rapture is going to happen before a one-world system is ushered in. The Bible says the rapture is going to happen before the 70th week of Daniel and the great day of the Lord's wrath and the signing of the peace treaty and the unveiling of the Antichrist. There's nothing scriptural that says we might not already be in a one-world system before the Antichrist takes the helm of it. So we've been very privileged as believers in America to experience an unprecedented length of time of freedom such as it is. Um, you know, the average length of a nation in world history is about 200 years, so we're living on borrowed time with 244 years old now. And, um, and, and, you know, we don't really recognize that throughout the world, sometimes, and I'm speaking to myself here, we forget that there are believers in Jesus Christ who are facing unspeakable persecution, the likes of which we've never known. In fact, experts tell us there are more believers being persecuted for the faith today than at any other time in human history. And, you know, we recognize, I hope anyway, that our freedoms in America are being chipped away at little by little to where it, this really isn't even the country that most of us grew up in anymore. But make no mistake, that's nothing compared to what we might face if the Lord tarries is coming. And we need to be, uh, we need to be prepared for that. So in Psalm 2, David gives us one of many glimpses we find throughout God's Word into this cosmic battle between Satan and God, and he expounds upon the role of Satan's earthly agents, the Luciferian elite, and, and kind of gives us a glimpse at what's going on in their mind as they plan and cavort together and try to think about how they can overcome the creator of the universe. So before we get into this, I'm going to, give you, I'm going to outline the Psalms. Psalms are easy to outline because they're broken down into stanzas. Uh, before we outline it and get into the text, I want to give you some background information uh, in the context here. So again, this is the second psalm. In fact, in Acts 13, Paul quotes from it and refers to it as the second psalm. 
So it's ordered in our English Bible exactly where it should be. But we also know, even though the original Psalm 2 in the Hebrew text is anonymous, we know it's written by David. Because in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John quote this psalm and attribute it to David. So as you hear me talk about David says this and David points out this, even though you may be looking at your biblical text there in Acts chapter 2 and say, well, it doesn't really say uh, David. We know from the authority of God's word that it's David that wrote this. And it is what we call a messianic psalm. It's talking about the future coming of Christ and his uh, kingdom. It's broken up, as I said, into four stanzas. And if I had to sort of summarize the theme of these 12 verses, it would be this. Submit to the authority of the Son of God, whom God has ordained to rule over us. That's, that's the message of God's Word, that the eternal Son of God came as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, but He rose from the dead, defeating death, hell, and the grave, and He's going to return someday as the victorious warrior. Uh, one of the passages we're going to look at this morning in, in a few moments is Revelation 19 that paints a very graphic, vivid picture of the wrath of God being poured out as Christ comes back in judgment. We understand from Scripture that there are four offices of the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, prophet, priest, king, and judge. And even though Christ is immutable and all of his attributes uh, he possesses from eternity past at all times, he never adds anything or takes away anything or gets better or worse. He is the unchangeable God in, in the form of the Son. We do understand that functionally, these four offices of Christ uh, in, in time, space, and matter take on different time spans. So he came as prophet for three and a half years during his earthly ministry. He is now the priest sitting at the right hand of God making intercession for us. He will return as king and take the throne in the rebuilt temple uh, in Jerusalem. But ultimately, after the 1,000-year portion of the kingdom and the, what we call the millennium, he's going to sit on the great white throne and serve as judge. And at that moment, anyone who has not placed their faith in Jesus Christ and him alone for eternal salvation will be left seeking to uh, you know, make themselves worthy before a holy God based solely upon their works. And it won't matter at that time, at the end of the age, whether you can line up truckloads full of good works. If you've never received the free gift of eternal life and Christ's righteousness on your behalf in that moment, it won't be enough. Because the righteousness that God demands for entrance into heaven is perfect righteousness. You can be 99.99% righteous, but it's not going to be enough. God demands perfection. You must obey 100% of the Bible 100% of the time. If you've fallen just once, you're not righteous enough. So it's Christ's righteousness that we must receive. That's what the Bible calls justification, being declared righteous by faith. And so Christ is going to sit on the great white throne. Nobody will have an excuse. Nobody can say that's not fair because the universal call for eternal life, the freeness of, of salvation in Christ, goes out to all. Whosoever will, let him come. If you're sitting here today and you don't know for certain you'll spend eternity in heaven, you've never maybe never placed your faith in Christ. If you die today, you'll meet, you know, you'll, you'll go into a Christless eternity and spend eternity paying for your sins instead of appropriating the, the payment Christ already made on your behalf, which you could have done. Come one, come all. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. 
The Bible ends with that universal call, whosoever will let him come drink freely of the water of life. So nobody's going to be able to say this isn't fair. We brought this predicament on ourselves by sin, and God, in his incredible mercy and love, even while we were yet sinners, sent his eternal son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place on the cross so that we could be redeemed from our own predicament. He didn't have to do that, but he did. So let's take a look at this growing global rebellion with that kind of backdrop and understanding of our role in this. Uh, let's kind of see what we can find here in Psalm uh, chapter uh, 2, this, this well-documented global rebellion that is growing bigger and bigger and bigger. Even people that don't know anything about the Bible are beginning to pick up pieces of the fact that there's something global going on here behind the scenes. They might not understand the spiritual aspect of it, but they know. They know. And it all started with Lucifer and his plot to take over the world. So in the first stanza here, the first three verses, David gives us the Luciferian uh, plot. He said, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? Uh, notice the motivation here to take over the world, this rage. This is the only time this word is used in the Hebrew Bible, and that's a little unusual. You know, in Greek, Greek was such a prolific language of the day and had been around for 300 years before the New Testament was written. We've got all kinds of examples of most Greek words, but it's a little unusual in the you know, restricted Hebrew language that's restricted to the Word of God for there to be a, a word that's only used once. And it's this word ragash in Hebrew, ragash. And, you know, you can see, I don't know if you can see it way at the back, but it says to be aroused, disturbed, or, or restless, to roar, to thunder. One lexicon says it means to be in tumult or to make a commotion. See, Satan hates God. He hates him. He and his earthly minions and his demonic forces, they're in an uproar. And they were in an uproar a thousand years before Christ. Just imagine now after the resurrection when Satan thought he had won this battle once and for all and he was sitting back high on his haunches saying, look at me, I won, I defeated God, I destroyed him. And then of course three days later the tomb was empty and Satan undoubtedly shrieked in horror and ever since then he's been frantically running around trying to do everything he can to still win a battle that he knows the biblical record. He's read the Bible. And don't forget angels, and Satan is an angel. Uh, he's the prince of demons. And uh, they're smart. The Bible tells us they're smarter than we are. Angels are. Why? Because they're not subject to human frailty of, of flesh and blood and time, space, and matter. They're dimensional. So, I mean, you and I both know that often when we're tired or sick or as we get older, you know, it, we don't think as sharp, right? And we're not as, you know, we're not able to, you know, be as clear. And we get, we, when we're tired, we just can't think straight. And, you know, and, 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 you know, with dementia and things like that, that impact our ability and our uh, thought processes. But not true of angels. So Satan's very, very smart. And he's read the end of the story. He just doesn't believe it's true. That's the issue. He thinks he's a liar. And a, from the beginning, he's been a liar. And as a liar, he only believes what he has to say. Jesus said when Satan speaks, he speaks of his own resources. He cannot help but speak a lie. That's all he knows how to do. And so, ragash, they are, they are raging. They're 
they're, they're you know, in an absolute uproar. They're panicking. And Satan then goes on, or David then goes on to describe this plot led by Satan. He said, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. That's Jesus. Against God and his anointed. So notice the earthly elements of a conspiracy. A conspiracy just means two or more entities working together for nefarious means. In the legal system in America, a conspiracy is defined as two or more people commit, working together to commit a crime, to do something illegal. Conspiracy. Uh, so there's definitely, and, and I've talked elsewhere about the biblical concept of conspiracy. It is a biblical word in Hebrew and in Greek. We see lots of examples of it. Um, but here we see this conspiracy. The kings of the earth and the rulers taking counsel together uh, with the ultimate leader of the conspiracy, Lucifer, and they're trying to come against the Lord and his anointed, Jesus Christ. He goes on to say in verse 3, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Notice there is capitalized, talking about the Godhead. You know, they, Satan does not like to be controlled. Amen? He loves his freedom. You might say Satan has control issues. He really does. He hates God's sovereignty. That's what got him in trouble in the first place. He wanted to be the one on the throne. He wanted the buck to stop with him. And so uh, he wants to break the bonds of God's authority. He wants to cast away the, the bonds, the cords of, of God's control. Uh, and it all started when he was cast out of heaven for being, trying to be like God. He, Isaiah tells us, uh, Satan said, I, want, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like uh, the Most High. And then once he got kicked out, he set his sights on the earth. Remember, he approaches Eve and he says, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Accusing God of lying and misrepresenting God's word. And then God confronted Satan after Adam and Eve sinned, and he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And, of course, seed there is capitalized, or re early reference there to Christ um, and the virgin birth. And ultimately, Genesis 3.15, theologians call it the protevangelium, the first example of the gospel in the Bible, because it's talking about how he shall bruise your head, even though you will bruise his heel. Satan's going to inflict a, a wound on uh, you know, Christ's heel, from which he will recover, metaphorically. But God, through Christ, is going to crush Satan's very head. And so there the battle began, right there, in the garden. And it's been raging ever since. And we see manifestations of it all around us. For some 6,000 years of human History, the nations have raged against uh, God trying to dethrone the king. And, you know, the, the word nations there in Psalm 2 is literally Gentiles. It can be people or because of the reference there to kings, it's talking about formal uh, king, kings and kingdoms trying to come against God. Jesus, as I mentioned, said Satan was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. He is a liar and the father of it. And then you remember the conversation between God and Satan and Job? The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? 
And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. You see, the earth is Satan's playground. That's why he's called the prince of the power of the air and the god of this age. And that's why John tells us the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. He's called in, by Paul in the book of Ephesians the prince of the power of the air. Later in that same book, Paul tells us that we're not wrestling in this battle between flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers and against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. You know, one of the, the, the primary goals of Satan, who Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4 is the god of this age, is to blind men's hearts to the gospel. That's where it begins. I mean, forget world dictatorship and world governments and the Luciferian conspiracy. That's all, you know, what we see playing out. But fundamentally, life comes down to one thing. Are you going to receive the free gift of eternal life paid for by the blood of Christ? And Satan wants to keep the lost lost. In fact, he has really a two-pronged approach in his game plan. If you could read Satan's playbook, you know, the, the liar's playbook, it would be two things, to keep the lost lost and the saved defeated. He wants us to be depressed, discouraged, wondering whether we're saved, doubting our salvation, basically sidelined in this battle, not vibrant, walking in the spirit, walking by faith, living for Christ as soldiers in this spiritual battle. And he wants those who don't know the Lord to remain lost. And he does that by blinding them to the gospel. So he does that through the proliferation of false gospel messages and you know, sloppy gospel messages and people not sharing the gospel. So that's why we're so passionate at Not By Works about the clarity, urgency, and accuracy of the gospel. Uh, but the devil in this, in this Luciferian plot is going to succeed, if only temporarily, eventually, in his quest to rule the world. At some point, for seven years at least, well, for seven years only, he's going to indwell the Antichrist, according to 2 Thessalonians 2 and Daniel 8, and the Antichrist is going to rule the world in a reign of terror, right? But we may already be in a one-world system before that, but the Antichrist is not going to take the throne until the start of the tribulation uh, period. And so uh, he's going to succeed. We read about this in Revelation 13, talking about the Antichrist. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And notice authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. That, uh, is that coming from our theater, that music? I wasn't sure if angels were serenading me or, you know. It's like God's way of saying, you go, JB, you tell, right? So anyway, just I'll, I'll try to keep going here. Hopefully we can figure out where this, uh, ah, nope, I thought it stopped. So we're in Revelation 13. We're in the midst of the tribulation period. Remember that authority that Satan railed against that we read about a moment ago in Psalm 2? He's going to have it. Imagine how giddy he's going to be as he indwells his man of the hour, the Antichrist. And, and there's this other false prophet, the second in command, that's going to work in cahoots uh, with, with the Antichrist during this revived Roman Empire and this one world system. And he's all authority is going to be given him. And the Bible goes on to tell us in the next verse, all who dwell on the earth are going to worship him. Of course, this is after the rapture. So we've those who know the Lord in this present age have already been rescued before the great day of the Lord's wrath. This seven-year period is variously referred to in Scripture as 
the 70th week of Daniel, that final seven-year part of Daniel's 490-year plan. It's referred to as the time of Jacob's trouble, the tribulation period, the overflowing scourge, the great day of the Lord's wrath, all of these things. But we are not appointed to wrath, so we're going to be protected from that in that final seven-year period. But those who dwell on the earth are going to be under this terroristic regime of totalitarian tyranny, right, during that seven-year period. Um, and, you know, every time I preach about this or talk about it, uh, we've got, you know, lots of materials on it. That We've got a three-disc uh, set called Globalism, Luciferianism, and the New World Order. Uh, we've got uh, my book, The Great Last Day's Deception, Exposing Satan's New World Order Agenda. So this is often something we talk about in various contexts. But whenever I do, uh, inevitably someone emails me or comes up to our booth and says, you know, why are you giving the devil so much attention, you know? Um, but that kind of thinking is so naive and unbiblical. I mean, the Bible is very clear in the church age, in the epistles, that we are to be sober and vigilant. Why? Because our adversary, who is not George Soros or BLM or Biden, our adversary, who? The devil, walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Right? We're told to resist the devil and he will flee from you. So before we leave this first section of this psalm, the Luciferian plot, um, let me uh, look. You know, let me once again kind of just spell out for you this Luciferian agenda. So, you know, we see Satan conspiring. Remember, a, a conspiracy is two or more entities conspiring with demons and human agents to usher in a one-world government. So I tell people all the time, I don't believe in conspiracy theories except the ones that are true. And that's absolutely the case. You know, I'm not a conspiracy. I'm a, I'm a bit of a conspiracy theorist because I like to theorize based on the evidence about what Satan might be doing and how he's rolling out his agenda. But there, I'm also a conspiracy factist because there are incontrovertible evidences of conspiracies all around us that are happening and we ignore them at our peril. For more information, by the way, on this, I highly recommend a series that I'm in the middle of right now called The Spirit of the Antichrist. Um, uh, it's had almost 4,000 views on our YouTube channel. I'm in part, I just recorded part uh, 14 uh, just right before we left to come here, and it's already posted. And part 14 is about the spirit of power. And I get into the CFR and Bilderberg and Bohemian Grove and fake elections. Hmm, I wonder how that plays in the, uh, the timetable. But there are several, you know, 14 uh, series, number 15 will be out next week. And, uh, you know, you can go back and look at the titles. If something interests you, get into it. But we're talking about, uh, the Bible says the spirit of Antichrist is already at work among us. And if that's the case, uh, what are the characteristics of the Antichrist? And I've broken them down into 10 that we read from the Old Testament and New Testament alike. And then I say, do we see that spirit of those characteristics evident today, which could be leading to a setting of the stage for the end times? And so I encourage you to go check that out on our YouTube channel. But, you know, in addition to the biblical record explaining, like David is talking about in Psalm 2 and many other places, that there is a Luciferian plot to take over the world, we know from the historical record here on earth of such a plot. And let me give you a series of of uh, quotes here, and again, this will be uh, posted uh, as soon as I get to it later today or tomorrow on the YouTube channel, so don't feel like you got to jot these down. 
but these are some pretty profound quotes. So let's go back to World War II. After World War II, for example, Charles de, Charles de Gaulle, uh, the French leader, said, Nations must unite in a world government or perish. James Paul Warburg, whose father was well-known, you know, as being an advisor to FDR and one of the ones who helped start the Federal Reserve System. Uh, James Paul Warburg said, We shall have world government, whether you like it or not, by conquest or by consent. It's a big new Brzezinski who served multiple presidents, Republican and Democratic alike, LBJ, Carter, Reagan. Uh, he helped start the Trilateral Commission. He said, this plan calls for a gradual convergence of East and West, ultimately leading to the goal of a one-world government. Notice he said national sovereignty is no longer a viable concept. We're hearing the same thing today, but more loud and more pervasive than ever before. This isn't just a few leaders after a world war getting together talking about it anymore. All, all uh, nations all across the planet are talking about it in the context of the control of virus scandemic. They're saying we need a great reset. The only way we're going to beat this thing is if we all come together, give up national sovereignty, and yield our authority to some world body. Brzezinski went on to say, soon it will be possible to assert almost, by the way, he just died in 2017, so this is fairly recent, soon it will be possible to assert continuous surveillance over every citizen and maintain up-to-date, complete files containing even the most personal information about the citizen. And these files will be subjects to instantaneous retrieval by authorities. He goes on, a persisting social crisis as well as the emergence of a charismatic personality and the exploitation, read, control of mass media will essentially help us in accomplishing our goal of a controlled society. Anybody think of a persisting social crisis that comes to mind in our current day? Okay. Arthur Schlesinger put it this way, we are not going to achieve a new world order without paying for it in blood as well as in words and money. See, they're prepared to do whatever it takes to usher this in. They've gotten close before, the League of Nations. Uh, well, we could think back to, in ancient times to world empires, you know, the Babylonian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire. Uh, we could think of, you know, Stalin. We could think of Hitler. We could think of the United Nations coming out of World War II. But largely, by the way, because of America, at least in the last 100 years, they've not been able to achieve this plan. And so their goal, if you read their own literature, is to bring order out of chaos. They must destroy uh, the freedom-loving United States of America in order for them to usher in their one-world system. And we know it's going to happen at some point, but, but hear me on this. That does not mean that we simply roll over and say, whatever will be, will be. That's not biblical at all. We have a biblical mandate to live for God and to proclaim righteousness and to uphold justice until Christ comes. So even though we know the end of the story that's going to involve at least a seven-year period of total world dominance by Satan, doesn't mean that we concede the battle. The whole purpose of the church age and the present age as the Holy Spirit indwelling believers is a restraining influence on evil is for us to stem that tide. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. And he's wanting us to be his only envoys. I mean, he could have written the gospel on the clouds. He could have dropped tracks from the sky. But you know how he chose to advance the message of God's amazing grace through you and through me. 
And we need to do that diligently and urgently until Christ comes. But yet we also need to be wise and understand the biblical plan and be aware of what's happening in this uh, cosmic struggle. And so they're going, it's going to come, and we just pray that it's not in our lifetime for the sake of our children and, and grandchildren. You know, I look at our little granddaughter, just turned one, and I think, man, what's life going to be like for her? I mean, she, at this point, because she was only, you know, a couple months old, three or four months old when it happened, she does not know a world where everyone around her does not wear a mask. That's what this little one-year-old thinks of when she thinks of human beings. Just think about that. It doesn't take long for societal shifts to become permanent. And, you know, we were told just 15 days, work with me here for 15 days to flatten the curve. No, no, by, e by Easter, for sure, by Easter, for sure, right? No, as soon as the curve flattens, you know, by this summer, you know, because, you know, everybody knows flus are so rampant in the summer, well, it'll be over. Well, here we are. Here we are. Talking about national mask mandates and whatnot. So they're, they're going to they're gonna work hard. I love this quote. I mean, I don't love what he said, but it's a very prescient, powerful quote by Edward Bernay, the father of modern propaganda. And uh, he said, quote, a presidential candidate may be drafted, quote, in response to, quote, overwhelming popular demand, but it is well known, talking here among the global elitists, that his name was first decided upon by a half dozen men sitting around a table in a hotel room. Go back and watch the, the video I just posted earlier this week uh, on uh, Spirit of the Antichrist and Part 14. I give a lot more detail about this. Carol Quigley uh, exposed the inner workings of the Council on Foreign Relations when he said their goal is nothing less than to create a world system of financial control and to be able to dominate uh, the political system of every country and the world as a whole. He said every individual's freedom and choice will be controlled within very narrow alternatives. He will be numbered from birth and followed through his educational teaching and so forth and so on. Prime Minister Churchill said this after World War II, from the days of Spartacus, Weishaupt, Karl Marx, Trotsky, this world conspiracy has been growing. It's exactly what David said a thousand years before Christ, this growing global rebellion. This conspiracy, he said, has been the mainspring of every subversive movement during the 19th century. You think the things that we've seen in America in the last month, over the, I mean the last few months over the summer, are organic, natural uprisings because, you know, some police officer used excessive force? Absolutely not. This is just more FBI COINTELPRO with agents on the payroll prompting this stuff and stirring the pot and making it happen, Subver subversive movements. Back to Churchill, the creation of an authoritative world order is the ultimate aim toward which we must strive. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt said, behind the ostensible government sits enthroned an invisible government, owing no allegiance and acknowledging no responsibility to the people. Uh, Manly Hall, that great Satanist, said, uh, great meaning powerful, not great meaning good, there are invisible powers behind the thrones of earth. That's exactly what David said. Why do the kings rage and conspire together? 
against the Lord and His anointed. Men are but marionettes dancing while the invisible ones, these invisible powers, pull the strings. That's the reason on my Great Last Days Deception book, which I wrote back in 07, no, I think, no, I'm sorry, 2012 I wrote that, uh, I have a picture of a marionette connected to different world uh, places showing that there's a greater power at work here. Uh, although, hang on, I know this is kind of depressing. We're going to get to the real power that's at work in the end. Um, Woodrow Wilson said, Since I entered politics, I have chiefly had men's views confided to me privately. Some of the biggest men in the United States in the field of commerce and manufacture are afraid of something. And they know that there is a power somewhere so organized, so subtle, so watchful, so interlocked, so complete, so pervasive, that they better not speak above their breath when they speak in condemnation of it. And if you don't think that power stopped at the shores of North America, you're kidding yourself. Okay, the United States is, is hardly a tyranny-free zone. Uh, FDR, put it this way, Teddy's cousin. As you, the real truth of the matter is, as you and I know it, that a financial element in the large centers has owned the government of the U.S. since the days of Andrew Jackson. He said, in politics, nothing happens by accident. If it happened, you can bet it was planned that way. So there is absolutely, uh, you know, this new world order. Benjamin Disraeli, Prime Minister of Britain, said, the world is governed by very different personages to what is imagined by those who are themselves not behind the scenes. David Rockefeller, instrumental in the early days of the Council on Foreign Relations, said, some even believe we are part of a secret cabal. This is from his own memoirs, his own autobiography. Uh, Working against the best interests of the United States, they characterize my family and me as internationalists and of conspiring with others around the world to build a more integrated global political and economic structure. One world, he said. Well, if that's the charge, I stand guilty and I'm proud of it, he said. He said, we're on the verge of a global transformation. All the world needs is the right major crisis and the world will accept the new world order. He said... The world is more sophisticated and prepared to march towards a world government. The supranational sovereignty of an intellectual elite and world bankers is surely more preferable than the national auto-determination practiced in past centuries. Did you catch that? This idea of nation-states with sovereignty and autonomy is passé. That's the stuff old things are made of. We need a supranational sovereignty. So I'll, I'll leave it at that as far as, uh, you know, uh, understanding, you know, that there is a re real Luciferian uh, plot that David refers to. Uh, if you want more information, again, you can check out uh, one of the earlier videos in this series, The Luciferian Agenda, in which I go over this diagram in detail. I won't take the time to do that now, but it's actually labeled, I forget what number it is, it's long about part four or five, but it's called The Luciferian Conspiracy Diagram. So back to verse 1. Don't overlook one little phrase in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? See, David alludes in the first, very, very first verse of these 12 verses, four stanzas in Hebrew, to the eventual outcome of this cosmic battle. It's futile. It's futile for anyone, Satan, demons, or human conspirator, to come against the Almighty and think you can win this ultimate battle. 
And we read at the end of Revelation that the devil, after the millennium, who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are. They were cast there a thousand years earlier. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. In other words, God wins. God wins at the end. But nevertheless, they are plotting together against the Lord. But the Luciferian plot is nothing compared to the Lord's plan. The next stanza, David tells us about God's plan. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. I love that. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Uh, then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. This is God's response. You have the Luciferian plot, but that's nothing compared to the Lord's plan. The Hebrews reminds us it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. In that second stanza, David tells us, I the Lord says, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. The future messianic reign of Christ over the whole earth is part of God's perfect plan of the ages. The Bible comes full circle to a pre-fall Edenic state in a rebuilt sinless world where the triune God is on the throne. The first thousand years of it, Christ, the son of David, the son of man, uh, the son of God is going to take the throne. But after that, when the old heaven and sin-stricken earth are destroyed, the new heavens and new earth are going to continue the kingdom in sinless perpetuity the way God created the world originally uh, and created mankind in his image. Um, this verb, this is kind of interesting to me in the Hebrew text. The verb set my king on a holy hill is in the perfect tense in Hebrew. And the perfect tense shows the, the action here as complete and certain even though it hasn't happened yet. In other words, this was done in eternity past. And we might look around us and wonder, well, where is this king on the holy hill of Zion? But the, the, the Hebrew grammar here reminds us that what's done in eternity is done. What's done is done. It's going to happen. And indeed, Jesus himself, the night before he was betrayed, when he, on the hill outside Jerusalem, gave that famous discourse, answering the question, when are you coming back? What's going to be the sign of your kingdom? He said this, among many other things. The sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. When the Son of Man comes, he said in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. Now, if we believe the Bible, by the way, I've never used a garbage can for my pulpit before, so this is another exciting COVID uh, uh, you know, thing here that we're experiencing all kinds of new things, but if you believe the Bible, you've got to believe the end of the story, that the king is coming. And we sung about that uh, this morning. And, you know, one-third of the Bible is prophecy, and half of that has not been fulfilled yet. So anyone who, you know, eschews Bible prophecy and says, oh, I don't care about that stuff, I care about practical stuff, they're only dealing with five-sixths of the Bible. And if you're content to, as a believer in Christ, as a Christian, a born-again Christian, to go through life reading five-sixths of the Bible, well, good for you. I want to know the whole thing. I want to know the whole counsel of God, and the Bible is quite clear about the Lord's plan. So we see the Luciferian plot, the Lord's plan, and then he introduces the long-awaited prince in the third stanza, the long-awaited prince. This prince of the power of the air is going to be replaced by the prince of peace, 
Jesus Christ himself. And he says in a, a verse often quoted in the New Testament, I will declare the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This points back to the Davidic promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7 where David was promised that his heir would sit on the throne in Israel forever. You know, that wasn't talking about Solomon. You know, Solomon did indeed take the throne, and that prophecy was part of 2 Samuel 7 as well. But in the context, if you read on, it says, He shall rule forever and ever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Right? That's not Solomon. That's Christ, the Son of God and the Son of David. The today in view here is not the day of David's birth, but his coronation, the day God's Son became God's anointed king. And that, again, is going to happen. It's what's done is done. Um, verse 8, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Why do the nations rage, David said? Because ultimately, it's futile. The nations are going to come to Christ. You remember when Satan tempted Jesus by offering him the kingdom and he said, all of these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. In the end, it's going to be Satan who falls down and Satan who worships God on the throne. He said, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces. This is, this is the long-awaited prince. And we see that when the prince of peace, Isaiah tells us, comes and takes the throne. And when he does, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. So Satan's going to experience a temporary victory when he ushers in this one world system the last seven years of which will involve the Antichrist in fulfillment of prophecy taking the helm. But that, that governmental control over the entire world system is going to be short-lived because the long-awaited prince is going to come back. And then he closes out with a lasting promise in a word of encouragement. The final stanza, uh, David reminds his readers and especially the Luciferian leaders of the world who are plotting a vain thing of this lasting promise, namely that those who place their trust in Yahweh will be blessed because Yahweh is the sovereign creator of the universe and Yahweh wins in the end. Those who don't place their trust in Yahweh, speaking in the original context, are going to suffer the wrath of Almighty God. He says, now therefore, kind of sort of answering the so what question after the first three stanzas, you know, explaining it, he now says, now therefore be wise, O kings, be wise, Satan. Don't be stupid. Be instructed. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. I love this. In the ancient Near East, this idea of kissing uh, an authority was a way of showing homage to them. And it carries on to this present day in customs like kissing the Pope's ring. And other cultures have the same thing. It's a way of showing that you bow to their authority. Whose authority should these nations and nation leaders and co-conspirators with Satan and his Luciferian plot bow to, they should kiss the sun. That's who they should kiss. That's who they should bow to. And, and, and if you remember in the story of Elijah, remember when Elijah was hiding out in the cave and scared of the wicked queen Jezebel? I've always thought that's interesting. He just experiences the mightiest uh, expression of God's power ever. You know, he could possibly imagine with the prophets of Baal. Then Queen Jezebel says, I'm going to get you, and he flees like a scared chicken, and he winds up in a cave. God comes to him in the wind and the earthquake and the fire, and finally in a still small voice 
And he said, what, what's up, uh, Elijah? And Elijah says, oh, poor me, woe is me. Nobody's left. I alone am left. And what does God say to him? I have reserved 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Again, to kiss the prophets of Baal, I mean the, the images of Baal, was to show authority uh, to him. So David says, uh, blessed are those who put their trust in him. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. So there you have it in this uh, growing global rebellion. The Luciferian plot stands a one. The Lord's plan stands a two. The long-awaited prince, the true king of kings, the prince of peace, and the, the lasting uh, promise. So are you ready for this growing global rebellion? We don't know what role, if any, will play in it. The rapture may happen today, and how many of you would vote for that, right? I would happily not go through the chaos of Tuesday night and beyond in favor of seeing our Lord Jesus face to face. Amen, Bob? Would that be okay? I'll vote yes. Yeah, you'll vote yes. Okay, that's two. Uh, so I would happily do that. But if the Lord tarries his coming, we need to be ready. So we don't know the mind of the Lord and what his timetable will be. And we may have to endure what many believers for the last 2,000 years of the church age have had to endure. And we've been not having to face. So here's the takeaway. Never fear the enemy. Be aware and be prepared. In other words, don't be scared, but be aware and prepared. And trust in the Lord, no matter what lies ahead. Amen? Hey, come on out after uh, church to the office. I'd love to meet and greet and kind of hear your thoughts on some of this and pick up some of our new books and, and things that are there if you're interested in that. Uh, but if you're not able to make it, check us out at Not By Works on the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash notbyworks, and encourage you to watch that series on Spirit of the Antichrist. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together today. Thank you for this great reminder, even a thousand years before uh, Christ came to earth as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, you were reminding us that there is a plot, but it is futile. And Lord, we say, even so, come Lord Jesus. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.